Cool. Okay. Um, today we're reading 1 John 3, 11 through 24, I hope. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Fabulous. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so who knows what KJ stands for? Catherine Joanne. There we go. Now you've learned something. So those of you who are here for the first, second, or third time, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Brian Roundsend, will you? Just introduce your friends to us. How dare we even go a moment further without your friends? All right, so this is a crew of, we have a total of 15 pastors from Canada who are in town for five days. They've been in a cohort for the last 18 months, and they're their final thing together is like a five-day retreat down here, soaking up the sun, exploring churches, meeting with friends like Chris. So would you just welcome our group? Delighted you guys are with us. Um, we are diving into the latter stages of this great, um, what Tomaki calls kind of a, a poetic sermon, and it's First John. And, and what mesmerizes me about the passage is that I can see John well into his 90s probably dictating this sermon. Um, and I can imagine his eyes are failing. I can imagine that he's probably a little stooped, his voice a little gruff, and yet there's deep passion. He's not waxing lyrical with long, elegant sentences like Paul did in Romans, he is repeating a number of key ideas that he is desperate that the church will continue once he's gone. There, there, is a, there is an element of urgency and passion that I read every time I read this passage. And what excites me about tonight's one is the specific idea of community matters. And that's the angle we want to take. Our theme for the whole book or sermon is legacy matters, the things that he wants to ensure continues once he's gone. But specifically tonight, we're going to take sections of this passage and just talk a little bit about community. Now, I want you to know, I am an absolute fan of Christian community. Meryl and I have been in it for 40 years. 
In fact, longer, we've been leading for 40 years, 42 years, 43 years. And so when people dismiss Christian community or deconstruct Christian community or move out of Christian community, I am honestly and authentically confused. Uh, Warts and all, she is still his bride, and we will walk her down the aisle to him one day, and we will present us, you, to the great groom, the, the groom of the age, uh, ages, the cosmic groom will come and gather his bride to himself. And that compels me. Having two daughters that I walked down the aisle, I saw them grow up. I saw their moments of rebellion, their moments, and Dana's not here tonight, so I will choose my words wisely and carefully. But I know what they were. I watched them grow up. I knew that I was not walking down the aisle a woman Dana was 24, 25, Nas was 18 when I walked them down the aisle. And they looked so stunning in their white dresses. Nas, my eldest, is 36. Every anniversary she wears her wedding dress. That's her commitment to herself and to her husband. And she is stunning, and I say that with complete bias. But there was that sense of privilege of holding those little girls in the palm of my hands, knowing that one day I will walk them down the aisle and give them away to someone else. The nature and purpose of parenting, I grew to realize, was not that they would reflect me, but they would reflect him. And one day, he would come and gather them to himself. Mark, Nasser's husband is six foot four. Stu, you know, is six foot four. But I had to walk them down the aisle and give them away. Arguably, two of the most traumatic days of my life when I realized fully that they were no longer mine. The look in their eyes was not popsicle, as Dana calls me, or Papa, as Nas calls me, but Mark and Stu, respectively. And in the, in the, the glisten in the eye of the church is Jesus. How dare we touch, downplay, deconstruct the one who has lived for her, died for her, resurrected for her, and will return for her one day. Not the kind of chaos of, of, of uh, a church without form and shape, but intimate communities who do life together. Pliny Jr. in the year 110, 110 A.D. wrote this to the emperor Trajan, I think, or Trahan. I interrogated them. In other words, I asked them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, meaning they held to their possession of Christ and them following them, I ordered them to be executed for whatever the nature of their creed might be. I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy, which means rebellion against authority and inflexible obstinacy, deserve chastisement. In other words, their rebellion deserved discipline, and if they would not change their posture, I would execute them. Those, this is the year 10, uh, 110 shortly after John died. Those who denied they were or had ever been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered the adoration with wine and frankincense interesting to your image, and who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts it is said that these who are real Christians could be forced to perform. Those who are real Christians would not do that, he says. 
They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or their error was, and here it comes, that one, they were in the habit of meeting at a certain fixed day before it was light. Yes, we are guilty, they said. On a fixed day before light, we met together, they said, and they sang in alternative verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. They met before light, singing hymns to Christ as to a God, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. They met before daybreak to sing hymns as to a God. Then they separated and they came back to eat ordinary food. For the matter seemed to me well worth referring to, especially considering the numbers endangered. Persons of all ranks and ages and of both sexes are and will be involved in the prosecution. For this contagious superstition is not confined to the cities only, but has spread through the villages and rural district. It seems possible, however, to check and cure it. What an incredible declaration by the governor of a region to the emperor of Rome, the greatest civilization ever, a thousand years. He said, look, I think I've got it under control, but the only way I can control it is to kill them, because if we don't kill them, they will meet together, they will meet together before dawn, they will sing hymns to Christ as to a God, and they will eat together. And at the possibility of death, they will hold that true. Ladies and gentlemen, community matters. You and I are created in our humanness. Our human dignity is to do community. Tian was telling me, my son, that he was in New York with some friends recently, and they sat down over a drink, and he asked the question to the group of six of them who were there. He said, what is the thing that you fear most? Not a phobia like sharks. I hate heights. And I was traumatized in, Be in Beirut because there is this little higgledy-piggledy um, cable car that goes down from the coast up towards uh, a cathedral built by one of the religious Christian organizations. And uh, it starts off slowly, this little rinky-dink thing. It was about the size of half of this table. And, and they said, look, it's been, it was built 80 years ago as if that would make me feel better. And we went up slowly, and then the incline changed, and literally houses with this far, apartment blocks were this far away from us. And then the electricity cut, cut and we were hanging there. And I confess, here I am, this robust South African person, soldier person, and I am petrified. I'm trying to act cool, but I'm holding on for dear life, praying in tongues as if tongues would save me. <laughs> and then... The elevation increases so that we actually leave the cable car and we get into a tram-like thing to go up, I don't know, I want to say 180 degrees, but obviously it was just whatever to get to the top of it. You see, that's not what Tian asked. It's not what is your phobia. It is what is the thing you fear most. And he said, you know what, Dad? He said, they were all friends, all in the 23, 24-year-old age, age range, and all of them said this, the fear of dying alone. I was stunned by that. 
I don't know about you, but I think it re reinforces this idea that we were created for community, to be in community, to contribute towards community, to find meaning there with others. And dear friends, that's not just, I, I walked up here one day and a friend who's a Christian walked past and he said, hey, where are you, 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 you going to Genesis? I said, yeah. He said, no, I'm having church inside here. Six of them had a beard together. And I thought, do I say something or not? And I decided not to. That's not community. That's fellowship at best. It's good. It's fun. But that's not meeting together before dawn, worshiping as if unto a God, eating together in holy community. Friends knit together as if one. What John does in this passage is he starts with the anti-community. He talks about Cain. Cain who murdered his brother. Now, if we go back for just a moment to Genesis chapter 3, my assumption is most of you would know a little bit of the story. Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And Cain was the eldest. But what happened? Just hold that for a moment, Lydia, if you don't mind. What happened is that Cain, in a moment of jealousy, killed his brother. The anti-community, the moment in which community was disrupted and destroyed because of what his mom and dad did. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you will find that, the, let me open it quickly. Forgive my passion, dear friends, but this is so dear to me. Honestly, you know, one of the privileges of traveling the world is it gets us out of the glitz and glamour of Orange County. This very protected world of our Christian expression where you can still be a Christian, and you kind of laughed at a little bit as irrelevant friends, you know, pff, one day you'll get the real revelation. But to go into spaces and places where the very essence of my survival as a human being is based on the community I'm attached to. I walk the streets of Beirut where Hezbollah live, where they kidnapped people, killed some, and ransomed others. The very essence of your existence depends on that community. It changes the way in which you view this, and it helps us understand the anti-community that Cain had because of his mom and dad. And very simply, I want to read it from my passage here, my, my scripture. Where am I? Here we go. Verse 25 of chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And then we pick up later on, it says, After they had the fruit, the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, the alternative to community. Something out there that protects me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God working, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God through, among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you, not eat, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to me, well, she made me do it. And we see the introduction of five things that consistently destroys common unity. Fear. Shame, guilt, 
isolation and blame. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. People, you know, in, in all the years Meryl and I have walked with the Lord, we've been in, led three churches and been in one other. 40 years. Some people are in four churches in six months. It's always someone else to blame. It's seeded in the anti-community of the garden. Oh, it's not my fault. It's always someone else's. The wonder of Christian community is I work my way through the pain and trauma when my heart is broken, as we'll get to in just a moment. Isolation. I separate myself because my heart is tender. Guilt, because I carry the sin and I'm petrified someone will find out what my sin is. Shame, because it's shadowed me, whether it's what others have caused me or what I have done. There's a shadow of shame that is the very trigger mechanism. If we had time and I look up at the clock and it's not, I would have Meryl come up and talk a little bit about shame. We had a conversation we had yesterday and then fear, anxiety, doubt, uncertainty. The anti-community seeded in the garden. Now, what about this passage? Let me skip a little bit here. Love, can I just have this bag? You know, I was just reflecting. got in from Lebanon last night. And I remember this book that I read in about 2001 when Jim and Casper go to church. And uh, Jim was a veteran Christian director of a, a kind of a well-known Christian thinker, speaker person. And through the web, he meets Casper, who's an atheist. And they start becoming friends. And so what he does is he invites him. He says, all right, I'll tell you what, says Jim to Casper. I will take you to different churches. And I believe that by the time I've taken you to those churches, you will believe in Jesus as I will. Ah, he said, he took the challenge. I won't tell you which churches they went to, because that would be a little awkward. But at the end of his journey, Casper was no closer to engaging in a life of faith in Jesus. And the only church that he felt in the slightest way represented Jesus was not one with smokes, mirrors, lights, big band, big band sound, that he simply said, I have bands I follow that are way better than that. Why would I want to go and listen to a very poor band? The closest he came was when he engaged in a small community who did life together around the table. And he said, that's the closest I can find to Christian community as I read it in the text but still not compelling enough to say, I want to follow this Jesus that you taught. He has good practices, principles, and ideas, but so does Buddha, and so he went on. What does this Christian community need to look like? From this passage, a few thoughts. Are you still with me? I want to argue that the first indicator of healthy Christian community, where community matters, is where it is a safe place. In the passage, it says, so we should not be like Cain. What did Cain do? Cain murdered his brother. Unsafe Christian community is where we are committed to the destruction and demise of other brothers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a quote well known, says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. The idea is not to build this idealistic picture of what community is like. It's the nuts and bolts of living out the raw reality of Christian community, warts and all, with people around us who are sinners just like we are. 
Two Sundays, three Sundays ago, the Sunday before Easter, I told two stories that were really unhelpful. I did not understand how helpful they were until on the Monday afternoon, I had two of the leaders come and see me and explain to me why they did more harm than good. That Monday, I had to meet, I had, we had a, a leaders meeting, about 40 of us met, and I apologized to them as leaders for representing them poorly because the stories did more harm than good. And the thing, when Dana said to me, Dad, she said, those stories did not make Genesis feel a safe place. And I think you could have knocked me over with a feather. I tried to communicate a story of God's redemptive grace in these two accounts of these two women. But what it did do was it surfaced experiences that women had in the church that traumatized them one more time. And I realized, contrary to my own desire, we were not a safe place in that moment to those people. And I apologize then as I do right now. One of the highest values we can offer people in a crazy, nutty world is that we are a community where our vulnerabilities and our transparencies, all of them, not that everyone knows everything, but that someone knows something about you to draw you out of the darkness of your own trauma and self-sinfulness. Expiation, whether it's something someone did to you or whether it's something you did, that there is redemption not only in Christ and at the cross, but it's lived out here. Saj and Michelle, let me tell you about them. Sajith is a beautiful brother. He's Sri Lankan by birth. His wife, Michelle, and I cannot say their last name because it's Salaman Abrabataman. But I flew back. They are elders in the church in Dubai. I flew back early from Beirut and had the night with them before I flew out back home yesterday afternoon. Went out to a great restaurant, had a great meal. They are busy planting into Sri Lanka in the summer. When we got back to their house, there was a girl <clears throat> that was sitting in their lounge eating their food who had a key to their house. I know her and I know the story, but I want to communicate it with you. We chatted for a while. I was tired, so I excused myself. But the next morning early at 6 o'clock, they made me breakfast before I flew out. You see, this young lady has been traumatized more than I can dare to tell you. Whatever your thoughts are right now, it's worse. It took her four years to trust Saj and Michelle. Four years. The trauma she went through was so dramatic that she is literally stunned as a human being, as a woman. Even the redeeming power of Christ, which has helped the beginning of the journey. She's not even ready to see a therapist yet. So deep is the trauma. But for four years, Sajith and Michelle have loved her. For four years, they've given her, them, her a key to their house. For four years, she lives in the same apartment block. She would come every night and come and help herself and watch their TV, even though she had her own, and eat their food, even though she had her own. 
Slowly but surely, her story has peeled out. And the little they've told me, I said, please don't tell me anymore. My mind and my soul can't cope with this knowledge. This kind of Jesus church is not a church of pretense and religious biography. It is a community of transparency and hope where we wrestle our way through the depths of our own personal trauma. And then it's held in the highest confidence. It's not displayed for the world to see, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Do you know about so on? It is held in the deep, deepest confidence because we have been chosen by God to carry each other's burdens. Colossians speaks of. We're carrying each other's burdens. Folk, please hear me. And I don't want to overstoat in my emotion right now. I'm so uncompelled by the dramatic and the, 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 the big kind of shebang called the church. And people walk in every Sunday in and out, carrying their shame and their guilt and their trauma, feeling that it's unsafe to display that because to display it would invariably lead to rejection. But oh, that God would empower us that we do not be as Cain to murder our brothers and sisters, but we are a safe place where Peter says, finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate. Be humble. We all have something we wished we hadn't done or hadn't been done to us. But where do we go with that? A therapist? Yeah, that's good. But some of the living out has to happen in community with those who will travel with us. And this, dear friends, has to be a safe place. Sajith and Michelle have made a safe place for this woman. In fact, the government of Dubai has signed over rights for her health that Sajith can make. She was traumatized. Again, I don't want to go down that road by anything surgical. So when she went for surgery, Sajith was allowed into the operating room to be there with her so that when she woke up, he was there. The face she saw was his. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a safe place. Please, let's be that to each other. Secondly, quickly, communitas. Alan Hirsch has popularized that. He didn't author it, but it's essentially family or community forged under fire. A shared ordeal that binds us together in a deeper form of community than one we are generally accustomed to. Something happened. Some fire has burnt inside of us, and now it's knit our hearts together. I was thinking as I was writing this of Gabby. I pointed him and his family to out. When I was nine years old, the civil war in Lebanon broke, up, broke out. For nine days, he hung out with eight little kids in a stairwell without parents, without adults. They were fighting, and they would sneak out and go and steal food to eat from the store that had been bombed and leave a note to the owner saying, we've taken this, we will repay that trauma. Yes, it is, but that's not it. Then he was part of the paramilitary, threatened by the militant groups of Hamas and Hezbollah. He was told that if he crossed a certain road as a captain in the paramilitary, he would be killed. COVID, the implosion of their currency that has shrunk a fraction. They literally come out with piles of money to buy coffee. 
the explosion of the warehouse of nitrates which they believe Israel bombed. And he has led his community through these brutal times. And let me say this, friends, and I'm telling you all of this because these are beautiful people full of faith and hope in spite of their very traumatic times. Communitas. Please don't run. Please don't run just because things get a little tough. Please don't run because things get a little hard. God knits our hearts together so we could face the challenges and traumas that life throws at us. Thirdly, sacrifice. I need to move quickly through these last few. You still with me? Okay. Sacrifice. We know it. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. St. Augustine said, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It is the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. I asked you to look at the picture of Mahdi, the Egyptian pastor and his beautiful wife, Grace, who's Lebanese. Let me tell you about them. An earthquake hit Syria. Recently, some of you might remember. Thank you. There they are in the top right-hand corner. An earthquake decimated Aleppo, what was left of it. The video, when it comes, I will show you. It looks like a zombie movie. Building after building of blown out. No windows, no doors. Pictures, this horror picture of a former life. In the middle of a civil war, after the earthquake went down, they got into their vans with teams of people from their church and they went into a civil war where the earthquake had happened and took supplies in to those Christians. And one of the most moving moments to me was in the rubble, them picking up their guitars and worshiping Jesus with these Christian Syrians who basically had less than nothing. They had lost everything. And this 70-year-old man took his vehicles, took his leaders, and they went and took supplies in. She took me to an office, Grace did, and there was some cabinets. I've got a photograph of that, but, and she said, Chris, you know what these are? And she opened it, and they pharmaceutical supplies. She said, our people cannot afford a headache tablet. It's too expensive. And we have prayed in, and these were cupboards loaded with medical supplies. And we have Go and distribute these supplies to people. We have a pharmacist and a nurse that diagnoses and then offers the medication. Folks, what does that do to us? It's not bland, boring, let's do the same thing Sunday after Sunday Christianity. It's when the earthquake breaks, the church is there to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's that kind of communitas. forgiveness because your sins have been forgiven bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone forgive as the Lord forgave you quickly let me just say that something about them and then I want to land with one more thank you for being gracious thank you for allowing me to rave a little bit Many years ago, probably 35 years ago, I was leaving our little community in South Africa and I had one of the young staff with me and Graham turned to me and he said, of Rory, 
He was also a young guy in his 20s, 22, 23, 24. And he said to me, Rory really loves you, doesn't he? And I heard my mouth say this. Yes, he does, but he won't follow me until I've disappointed him. And that little phrase has stuck with me all these years. Yes, he loves me, but he won't follow me till I have disappointed or offended him. One of the true signs of this kind of biblical community is the ability to forgive, dear friends. It's the ability when someone injures us to be bold and courageous enough to speak that through and then to come to the table of the Lord and to break bread and say, it really hurt, man. But I'm not going to ghost. I'm not just going to disappear. I'm not going to be another story of another church leader who has spiritually abused me. I want to forgive you, even as I want to be forgiven. There is something sublimely powerful about communion in the light of forgiveness. Please don't harbor that. Please. You will find yourself naked and ashamed and go from one church to the other looking for something that does not exist. There's great power in forgiveness. Can I say that to those of you who are married? People ask me, well, we've married for 42 years. What's the key? I say forgiveness. I'd love to tell you something more sexy than that, but it isn't actually. It's the ability to look into the eyes of the one you love deeply and who has injured you deeply. And I've injured Meryl deeply. The little you see of me on a Sunday is but a small rendition of a very passionate, many times insensitive, even harsh husband. And I've had to apologize more times than I wished I needed to. But forgiveness is the great balm of Gilead. Lastly, sorry it's been so rushed. Supernatural encounters. What does this community look like? Well, I've said firstly, it's a safe place. Secondly, it's a communitas, a family forged under fire. Sacrifice, thirdly, it is forgiveness, fourthly. And then lastly, supernatural encounters. The brother whose name I can't remember... The Syrian brother, we had coffee together. He told, me his sto- told us his story. He was a Muslim who, like many, left Syria for a better life. Ended up being caught in Cyprus, was sent back to Syria. When he landed in Syria, the secret police arrested him. That's longer story. This is what's important in that story. He was put into 90 days of solitary confinement in a room that he could not lie down in. He said he realized that this was traumatic, not just from his own experience, but he heard one of the other prisoners say, I have a headache, and the guards pulled them out. Can someone help me? And the guards pulled them out and started hitting him over the head, saying, tell us when your headache is gone. He didn't know who to cry out because Allah wasn't helping him. An X number of days in, I forget, a man in white appeared to him. And he started loving him. 
And he said to me, I don't know how to describe it, but I felt what was like oil beginning to... Now, this is a Muslim man. He has no context for our sacred scriptures. And he said, it was as if oil poured over me. And he said, I looked down and he said, my clothes, this the remnant of the clothing that he had, was wet with oil. He said, I looked at my feet and I moved my position and there were stains of oil. And he said, the pain was gone. And he said, I don't know who you are, but I want to follow you. He's planted about five or six churches among Syrian refugees. No glam, no glory. Doesn't tout it as, well, look how amazing I am. But with humility and brokenness, speaks of his love for Jesus and his desire to see the gospel go into the communities that are so deeply disorientated by the war. Listen, guys and gals, I hope many of you are not committed to a life that is simply a predictable life of a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger salary, and you live out your life as if that was true meaning and purpose. Community gives us unique purpose, and that is that we give our lives away for the benefit of others. I hope that many of you are saying, God, I will go for a week, a month, a year, a decade, or for the rest of my life to take this gospel into those places with humility and love and care, go to those whose life experience is not ours and to be the, the life of Jesus in those spaces. One more story. Just throw the picture up again, Lydia, if you don't mind. In amidst an economic collapse, I mean, literally the currency imploded. It used to be one Lebanese pound to one dollar. It's now something like one to a hundred thousand, one to fifty thousand or something. People's savings were gone. Gabby told me his dad used to earn about fifteen hundred dollars pension. He now earns twenty-five dollars a month. In amidst all of that, Mahdi saw an empty building without windows, without doors. A structure like many others that could not be completed because of the implosion. And he started walking that. And he felt God say, Mahdi, it's yours. Would you trust me? And he said, all right, Lord, I'll trust you. And he and his wife, Grace, and she is beautiful, honestly. He just, you, just, you just feel like you're in the presence of godly people. And he tells the story as I'm landing. And he said, Chris, we started walking this building, this empty building without anything, just a concrete structure. And we started walking and praying. And he went to the owner and he said, a Muslim man, and he said, I'd like to rent your building. This empty building without finishes, no windows, no doors, no floors. And the man said, I want $70,000 a year, 80000 And Mahdi said, okay, we'll do it. And he said, Chris, I went home and I sat on my bed and I said, Jesus, there's no way we can raise $80,000, none. And he said, I wept as I felt the Spirit of God say, but I can provide for you. A church of a couple of hundred people in Beirut, where the economy has imploded. He said, the next day, two envelopes arrived at my office. No one knew. One had 40, 
$50,000 in. And they call them fresh notes because old dollars have been counterfeited. So everyone wants what they call new dollar notes. And he said, I opened this the same day, $40,000 and $35,000. He said, God paid our rent for a year. Ladies and gentlemen, we are meant to live supernatural lives. When we put ourselves out to live lives that we cannot manage, it gives God opportunity to reveal himself, doesn't it? One more story and I land. He said, when that nitrate building imploded, they say it had the force of a nuclear bomb, second only to Hiroshima. He said, the areas around it were decimated. And they felt God say, the same church, they felt God say, go into the Muslim areas and say, we will rebuild your houses for free. And he said, Lord, we don't have the means. In the basement of the building is a large area that was open. And he said, Lord, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have carpentry equipment to go and fix the Muslim buildings? Long story short, they found some carpentry equipment available for $40,000. Didn't have it. Went to the people who owned it and were selling it. They ended up saying, okay, okay, we just want to get rid of it for $4,000. They showed me the equipment. And then when push came to serve, they came and said, look, you're going to do good with it. It's yours. $40,000 worth of equipment given. Why? Because they put themselves on a line. And I saw video footage of them going into Muslim areas, rebuilding Muslim homes, and sharing the love of Christ sovereignly and supernaturally provided. And many of those refugees, they brought back in and taught them how to weld, taught them how to build cabinetry, taught them how to build window frames. Community matters. Because God can do extraordinary things with the people. And I've handpicked five areas out of this passage. When we say yes together. Where we're not given to the vulnerabilities of the Western church driven by that kind of selfish narcissism. No matter how big you think your dream are, it's, is, it's small in comparison to one will put a thousand to flight, two ten thousand. The multiplied explosion of a Christian community that lives for the benefit of others. One day a week, before it was light, sang hymns to Christ as if to a God, and then ate together. And those people who were prepared to die to have the right to do that, changed a civilization within 400 years. It's a remarkable story. It is our only true hope. Let's pray together.